Well, to connect some with uh, Pastor Craig's story of what he's been doing this last week, going to sporting events, I'm going to talk about authority today, and that's really one of the places where we most witness authority is in sporting events and the idea that there's an official there. There's somebody there making the call on on what's right, what's wrong, what's out of bounds, what's in bounds. One of my early experiences as a pastor, first covenant church I ever served, actually was my home church. I was associate pastor there. One of the responsibilities was leading the single young adults. And there were two guys in the single young adults group that uh, came with a story one night one of those guys, uh, his name was David. His last name was Donatelli. If you are uh, longtime baseball fans, I mean, going back to the day, David's dad was Augie Donatelli, probably one of the most famous National League umpires in baseball history. I mean, if you Google his name, you'll see all of these iconic photographs of Augie uh, making calls. He was, uh, near the end of his career, was pretty much always a World Series ump. He just drew that because he was so well-known. He was hard uh, as an umpire, too. I mean, he would throw you out of a game in a heartbeat. So uh, David is Augie's son, and uh, David's uh, close friend and roommate, who was also in the group, his name was Randy, and Randy was trying to crack into the NBA as an NBA referee, and it's a long journey, and he was in his 20s, and you know, there are a lot of things you have to do. Well, you end up having to ref a lot of games, not only college games, but even city league games. You have to have a lot of refing experience. So he refed city league games, and uh, one night he had three city league games to do, one right after the other, and at the last minute the other ref that was working with him canceled. So Randy said to David, hey, look, easy money. Come along with me. We're the same size. You can wear one of my ref shirts. Put the whistle on. You don't have to do anything. You'll make three games worth of easy money. Well, it sounded good, and and Randy said, I mean, you have officiating in your genes, too. I mean, your dad is a ref. Well, reality is David had played basketball, never refed basketball. He'd never refed anything, and he was a little hesitant, but Randy talked him into it. They got to the game. He said, just let the whistle stay right in the middle of your chest. Do not bring it to your mouth. I'll make all the calls. You just kind of move around. Don't get too close to me. You know, create some separation, and we'll be fine. Well, first game, uh, they were pretty much fine. David never made a call, never brought the whistle to his mouth. But there were guys coming for the second game, sitting in the stands, watching the end of the first game, and they noticed this one ref just didn't make calls. So um, they started the second game then, and they started agitating him a little. Ref, you never make calls. So David was getting nervous. Randy said, okay, David, um, we've got to make this at least look better. So put the whistle in your mouth, but don't blow it. Well, this is his second game, and David's not used to running this much up and down the court, up and down the court. So on one of those journeys back and forth, he's just out of air, and so he, he blows, he exhales, and it blows the whistle. Well, then the, the play stops, and of course everybody looks to the referee. He has no idea what to say. He didn't mean to blow the whistle. So he's just standing there. Randy jumps in, intervenes, makes some sort of call, but things are going downhill uh, in this. Well, by the third game... The third team who had watched and also heard from players on the second team, 
this guy's a sham. He, he never makes calls. They actually decided to do an old Harlem Globetrotters trick on him. So one of the teams, when they came back out, turned quickly and actually passed the ball to the referee, to David. And David has played basketball, not used to officiating, so he catches the basketball. Well, now what do you do? You stopped play. You're holding the basketball. You caught it. At that point, Randy said, it got out of hand, and uh, we would never do that again. When you lose authority and the concept of authority, you get chaos pretty fast. And that's what was happening on the court. Chaos, as the evening went on, was starting to reign. Authority is something very very sacred and practical. So that's a story, but let me get back to the real story, the story we've been looking at together with the life of David. 3,000 special forces looking for a fugitive in caves and the rocky terrain of the Middle Eastern desert. Almost sounds like something you would read today. But the one that's being hunted is not some evil terrorist with a a group of uh, terrorists with him. And the one doing the hunting is not a man who's trying to protect his nation. It's actually a man who's trying to protect his own life out of insane jealousy. We pick the story up in 1 Samuel chapter 18 just to give you a, a picture of what the life of David is like during this time as he runs from Saul. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, this is referring to Goliath, last week's message, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And that close could be translated jealous. Skipping to verse 28 and 29, that same chapter. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So we're talking about the throne, and David is on his way. He's on a journey to the throne, but when this story takes place, for a long period of time, he's hiding, he's running, he's in caves, he's in the hills of the En Gedi wilderness with his men. They're in an area of rugged limestone cliffs and hiding for their lives. What happens in this story next is so astonishing that nothing really needs to be said about the miraculous hand of God being involved. The circumstances tell the story. David and his men are hiding in a particular cave in a very big area. 
and Saul and his 3,000 soldiers that are trying to track them down are near that cave, and King Saul goes into the very cave where David and his men are hiding. There's no delicate way to say this to relieve himself. Now, if you picture what this is like, you have someone coming into the cave from bright sunshine, coming into a dark cave, unable to see who's in the cave. You have David and his men who are in the cave and have been in there, their eyes adjusted to the darkness, and light from the mouth of the cave as a backdrop. They can see very clearly who this is. So that's the scene. Saul, the king, is in a very vulnerable spot. He has unjustly pursued David at this point for years, and there's no end in sight as long as the the king lives, unless David is killed. David knows he's already been called to be the next king, but there's still a king on the throne. And there's very very little legal remedy open for David in that system. There's no way for him to challenge the throne. David's men see an opportunity to expedite what they believe is the needed thing to happen, which is that King Saul needs to go. He needs to die, and David needs to ascend the throne. So when David crawls forward toward King Saul with a knife in his hand, I'm sure they saw This is it. This is the solution we've been waiting for. But when David crawls back to his men, he crawls back with a clean knife and a little piece of Saul's royal robe. And David's men are dumbfounded. That's not what they expected to see when he crawled back to them. But as David returns with a small piece of stolen cloth, He's filled with regret. And his regret is not that he did not kill Saul, but he feels remorseful that he even cut a corner of King Saul's robe off. And his explanation is in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. That is a very, very high respect for the authority of the throne. And while David doesn't lift his hand against Saul, he does try to deal respectfully and truthfully with Saul and his bitterness and and the way he's been deceived. So a few verses later in verse 11 through 13, He's calling out to Saul once Saul has left the cave. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. When you read that story, you might be thinking, uh, boy, I wish I had a personality like that. I really do. I wish I had a personality like that, but that is not how I'm wired. 
somebody wrongs me like Saul has been doing, and I'm going to get mad, and I'm going to take action. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just not wired like that. I'm more wired like David's men. David's response is not about his personality. Um, David is very capable. He has a proven ability to be passionate, a righteous warrior. He has a proven ability to be offended and to take action. I mean, you heard last week, if you were here, when Pastor Craig went through the story with Goliath. I mean, there's David as a young man. He knows how and when to be offended. He doesn't have this uh, passive personality. That's not what's behind this. And actually, if you read the next chapter, chapter 25 in 1 Samuel, David and his men have, um, as part of their journey, they camped around the flocks of a man named Nabal. And during that time, they protected his flocks and his shepherds so that nothing was ever missing from this man's flock. And then when they get ready to move on, David sends some men to ask Nabal for just some provision of food. And he's not demanding. He says, whatever you can find for us, if you could just give us some food. Nabal is a very wealthy man, and his response is to insult David. So in chapter 25, verse 10 and 11, Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? If you think David is not capable of being ticked off, read what happens next. He is ready to take this man out. In fact, the only thing that keeps that from happening is Nabal has a wise wife who hears what's going on and does a little mediation and really, the thing that kept it from happening was Nabal just had a well-timed heart attack and died on his own. So when you look at David's response to King Saul, don't say, oh, I wish I had such a passive personality like David. That's not what this is about. David's a passionate man. But he does have a high respect for authority. And that part of his life is so unusual. His own men don't understand it. It's so unusual. It's very unique. And what I want you to bear in mind is the unique position that David is in. He's not on the throne yet. But when Samuel came to him earlier in his life, sent by God, David was anointed. And the scripture says the Holy Spirit came on him from that moment. So what is it that's unique about David? The Holy Spirit has filled him and come on him, which would tell you that this high view of authority and respect for authority is because authority is holy and ordained by God, and now the very Spirit of God is living in this man. Reverence for authority is holy, it is ordained by God, and it is rare in this world still. I had an exchange recently with a, with a retired pastor, which I do in my work from time to time. And in this particular uh, instance, I had to remind him of a, 
kind of a hard truth for retired pastors, pastors who move on from their assignments, and that is uh, you're not really supposed to be involved in the place you just left. You're supposed to, we have a phrase we use in our covenant minister ethical guidelines. It says you leave with a courteous finality, uh, which means you don't interfere with what's going on. And I thought in a very well-meaning way, I'm sure he was doing some of that and actually had inadvertently put me uh, on a list where I could see, uh, or maybe he did it on purpose because I I think he did it very harmlessly in his own mind. But he was interfering with the church that he had served. And so I just sent a personal communication back to him and told him that that really wasn't a good idea and here's why. And that I'm sure that he had the best intentions, but he really needed to uh, pull away from doing that and not do that again. And he's, he's a dear guy. I love him. In fact, that's what you do with people you love, is you communicate directly with them like that. And uh, so his response back to me, he has such a high respect for authority and such a wonderful relationship with God, his response was, thanks for the wise counsel, much appreciated. I hear, I understand, I will obey without hesitation or purpose of evasion. I love that phrase. In fact, I thought that's such an interesting phrase. And and I'll tell you, that purpose of evasion thing, you know where that comes from? Um, It's part of the oath of office for military officers. That's where that phrase comes from. And he, in fact, is a retired military officer. And I love him all the more now uh, with that exchange. There's something very holy about respect for authority. David's respect for Saul is not respect for the man, but respect for the position that the man holds out of respect for a holy God. And it's actually the same concern for the holiness of God that inspired his outrage at Goliath and what all was happening there. The same concern that inspired his outrage at Goliath now inspires his restraint with King Saul. David did not allow himself to become a victim of Saul's violence when there was a choice, and he set the record straight with Saul when he had a chance, but he did not disregard Saul's authority, and he waited for God, the one ultimately in authority, to move. His response to authority, then, was an act of faith. How will God work this out as I respond to the authority he has placed over me? He didn't know. When you, look, when, you, when you look at uh, David and his response to Goliath, and, and Pastor Craig last week walked us through that scene with Goliath, you can see why he was so shocked at the situation when he, as a young shepherd, went down and saw what was happening. Why are the Israelites being directed by Goliath and the Philistines when Goliath and the Philistines have no authority at all over the Israelites? The Israelites, in fact, belong to God, and they are under his authority, and the Israelites have a king. They're responsible to listen to their king, but who is Goliath? He has no authority in this situation at all. And in fact, Goliath and the Philistines are insulting the authority of God. And David's like slapping his head. I don't get this. He has this high view of authority. 
Why were the Israelites not listening to God and honoring his authority? Any discussion of authority has to begin with God, for he is the author of authority. And he is the only one who has self-authenticating authority. He has authority right from the beginning. For everyone else in this world, authority has to be given. But God has it from the beginning. It's interesting to me that worldviews that do not recognize God do not emphasize authority. Instead, they emphasize power. And there is a difference. Goliath is a symbol of power. He has no authority. He's trying to puff up and emphasize his power. And you see David, even as a young man, he does not respond to the threat of power. He will respond to authority, but he does not respond to just the threat of power. Well, authority requires a God. It requires an absolute, an ethical absolute. God's authority is supreme and absolute. He has authority over history. He has authority over nature, as we saw when God came in the flesh in the form of Jesus. He was able to command even the oceans. When the, when the ex- expectation is that there is a God who is in authority, it changes everything. God gives his authority to people on this earth for temporary times. Moses was given authority by God. That's how he explained his job, that he was given that authority by God. And when he gets near the end, he doesn't know exactly when the end is, but God comes to him at one point and says, okay, I want you to, I want you to give some of your authority to Joshua, which was a sign it's about time for you to be finished. And this authority that I gave you, I want you to start giving that to Joshua. It's interesting that even Jesus himself spoke of coming, having been given authority by God. He didn't grasp it. He was given authority by God. When there is a breakdown in the concept that God is the supreme authority, there is understandably a breakdown in the whole concept of authority. And so King Saul has rebelled against the authority of God. If you go back and look at his life and where it started to unravel, it started to unravel when... You know, he started as a very humble king. Oh, who am I to receive such a position of authority? Then he got into it uh, after a little while, and he started uh, taking liberties and making decisions on his own without consulting God. And when he rebelled against God's authority and instruction, it led to chaos in his life and ultimately death. So David now is going to ascend to the throne But he's not going to do that automatically. He's not going to seize the moment. He knows he must be given such authority. So when David hears about the death of King Saul, David grieves for some time. He doesn't rush immediately. Finally, now I'm going to get on that throne I've wanted to be on for a long time. He grieves. For 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, after this period of grieving, In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. 
You see the submissiveness here? He's not rushing to the throne. Saul's dead. This is mine now. He says, Lord, what should I do? Where should I go? Should I go anywhere? Should I go to one of the towns of Judah? Yes. Okay, Lord, which one? Hebron. Okay. He goes to Hebron. The people there are uh, uh, very receptive to David, and they anoint him as king of Judah. But that's just one tribe. He's anointed as the king of the tribe of Judah. For many, many years, he ruled only one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Why? Because that's all God told him to do. He had been directed by God. He's a man under authority. After many years, the time comes for him to rule over all Israel. That story picks up in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In, In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So it's seven and a half years after the death of King Saul before David actually was anointed to rule over all Israel. But I want to tell you one who is truly understanding of authority and the supreme authority of God is not motivated by the call of power to be on that throne but is motivated by the call of the one who is in power on the throne in heaven. The one who really understands authority is not motivated by the call of power, but is motivated by the power of the call. Whenever that is and wherever that is. The servant nature of ruling and being in authority was clearly understood and articulated by Jesus. But it didn't get a great following with his disciples. They didn't understand it. When God the Father granted authority to God the Son, God the Son used that authority to serve others even to the point of sacrifice. So you might remember when the mother of James and John came to Jesus asking for positions of authority For her uh, sons, they got a lesson on authority from Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down to ask a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit in your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is a very clear message. If you would want to be in authority, you must be willing to sacrifice your life. Because being in authority means now you are to put others' interests above your own, including the giving of your own life, if needed. That's why the concept of authority is so holy. It's connected with the concept of sacrifice. The reality is the earthly throne, at its best, is more like an altar. You picture this I mean, this is an image of a throne. But this is where the one who would occupy that throne, if you're going to occupy it as God ordains, it would look more like an altar that you're laid on to give your life. Not something where you sit and make demands for your own interest, but where you lay down your life. Once understood... That concept makes the language of Jesus about coming to establish his kingdom and yet dying a sacrificial death not seem so contradictory. See, at the very first moment when the disciples seemed to understand that Jesus was the Christ, and you remember that moment where he says, uh, who, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The word Christ means anointed one. It's It's like saying... You're the king. The moment they understood he was the king, he commends them for their insight on that. And then he says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And you remember how that went over? Particularly with Peter, who had just said, You are the king. You are the anointed one. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord. He said, This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The one who is the true king has in mind the things of God here. But how will you know the things of God? How will you know how authority works and what you should respond to. I was uh, really so encouraged last week by uh, Pastor Sam's report of students' experience at Chick, and I really took note of the very last part of what he said about Louis Giglio's talk about the foundation and the importance of the Word of God. We do believe in the authority of the Bible, and that, that says a lot. It's very important to understanding authority to know that we have guidelines for how we respond to authority and what authority there is over our lives in this book. It's a book that is authoritative in its witness. 
it's authoritative because in those Gospels, it, it gives us a picture of the identity of Jesus Christ and that he is clearly the Son of God. Having established that, among other things, you realize he affirmed that the Old Testament was the word of God. The Old Testament has authority because Jesus said it has authority. So the Gospels establish he is God. And then when you look at what he said, he constantly used the Old Testament because for him he says this is the word of God. And then that same Jesus looked forward. He spent all of his time really training the apostles, knowing that they would become the interpreters of the life of Christ and the agency of the church in moving forward in the generations to follow. So when we talk in our particular denomination about the Word of God, the Old and New Testaments being the final rule and authority for all life, doctrine, and conduct, that's why. The life of Jesus, he looks back and he says, this is the Word of God, and he looks forward. These are the apostles. Our confidence is in the living word of God, Jesus. And the source of our confidence in the written word of God, the Bible. It gives us a standard. It gives us a way to look at life, a life that can be shared with others. It's something we look at together. We know that history ancient history and even more recent history is filled with examples of people who have stripped the Bible of its authority and then paid the price in chaos and evil. In most cases where this has happened, the Bible is replaced by changing things, normally by things like cultural norms. It's interesting, many are the critics of German Christians who adopted Nazism in the 30s. But in reality, they were only submitting themselves to the cultural norms because at that time, in the academic circles, the Word of God, the Bible, was being characterized as archaic in serious need of revision and not to be trusted. That's what was happening in the theological sense. And so you can see why then people would begin to adopt what seemed to be the norms of their culture. Our source of authority must always be outside of our culture. It has to be outside of our experience and our limited reasoning and our personal traditions, or we will have chaos. Dr. David Brees, in his book, Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave, has a whole chapter. One of those seven men is the German theologian Julius Wellhausen, who's cited as one who helped lead the charge in Germany to trust human reason above the Bible. And Dr. Brees says this, as a consequence, the Christian religion became a complex set of human rationalizations rather than the revealed truth of God. This defection from the orthodox view of scripture was the evisceration of Christianity, leaving it a mere religion without life, without hope, and without authority. Now, you know, one of the things I'm aware of is that nobody would intentionally seek to have a faith that was out without life and without hope. You know, try peddling that sometime. I have a great new religion for you. It's without life and it's without hope. You'll love it. Nobody would do that. 
But to suggest a religion without authority, to pursue a relationship with God that is without ultimate authority, now that's not unusual at all. That actually goes all the way back to our first parents. They wanted such a religion. A religion where God did not have the ultimate authority. You listen to what he says, and if it seems to make sense to you, and you think he's on the right track, but if you think maybe he's gotten something wrong, you, he's not in ultimate authority. Our first parents react to that. So that's not an unusual thing at all, to pursue a relationship with a God who is without authority. Well, what happens is, if you do that, you end up with a religion without life and without hope. Authority is sacred because God is the ultimate authority. And where he reigns, there is life and hope. Closing thought came to me. I was standing there in the front, and I was looking at this throne and the way it's positioned, and the the cross is behind it. And I was remembering in that crucifixion scene with Jesus. Um, you might remember there was a sign nailed to the cross. And that sign actually was to be put on crosses. It was to establish what the person hanging on the cross had done. What, what was their crime? And for him, it said, King. King of the Jews. Um as we have sung, he is our king. That image of the throne and the sacrificial cross, that is our king. Let's pray together. Lord, we desire to be people who are submissive to you. Help us, Lord, not to fear power nor pursue power, but to respect your divine authority and your holiness. You do rule from your throne. And Lord, help us to honor your word so that we too can hear and understand and obey without hesitation or purpose of evasion. We pray in Jesus' name.